0: You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So welcome to another episode of Derms and Conditions, and this is a great day. This is a great day because we're going to be talking to Natasha Mezenkoska, and she is a dermatologist. She trained at... Uh, the Cleveland Clinic, which explains why her son is a passionate Browns fan, and did dermatology and dermatopathology there after going to uh, medical school at Mayo. So she's been around some cold places, but was smart enough to go out to Southern California. And she is the vice chair of clinical research and also associate professor of dermatology at University of California, Irvine. And I've gotten to know her recently, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it on a personal level, but also she's so knowledgeable and she's so humble about it. So Natasha, it's great to have you here today because we have a lot of exciting things going on with alopecia, had had big news fairly recently. So I'm really looking forward to tapping your brain on this.
1: Thank you so much for having me. The admiration goes back to you. Ditto for everything you said. Very exciting times, and I can't wait to talk about it.
0: Well, c- certainly myself, if you've ever seen me, this is all my hair. If, if the world was like me, I, I, would, uh, uh, I would be putting you out of business other than low dose minoxidil and maybe some finasteride prescriptions or whatever. But, you know, I'm fortunate that way, but I do have a lot of, uh, uh, I really. Feel badly when I see people that are suffering from a variety of different types of alopecia. So, just in general, um, some of the new information we hear about diseases that were sort of always in the back of my mind, like uh, frontal fibrosing alopecia and other forms of alopecia that are being identified, a lot being brought forward by a lot of the emphasis now on patients with skin of color and other ethnicities and backgrounds where some of these disease states may be more common, but they affect every everyone, essentially. Can you give a little bit of an overview of, of what you're seeing with alopecia in general?
1: Um, I think... Uh everything that you said is true. We're seeing, whether it's the rise of autoimmune diseases overall, we are seeing a rise in both scarring and non-scarring inflammatory alopecias. Whether that's alopecia areata, um, frontal fibrosing alopecia, or CCCA, this is something that we're seeing across not just United States, but all around the world. Um, for alopecia for example, the best data is out there because that has been in a way something that's very closely monitored. We are seeing incidents and prevalence increase worldwide. Different for different continents, different in different racial nationality groups, but it is something that we're seeing grow. Why? We don't know, right? We have all these speculations of the healthy lifestyle. Is it hand in hand with the risk of hypothyroid uh, going up? We don't know, but uh, we're seeing the same from frontal fibrosis in alopecia, also CCCA. Um, time will tell. Once we figure out what the mechanisms are that govern this, what are the triggers, I think time will tell what's going on and what the reasons are.
0: So, as a clinician, we see a lot of male pattern alopecia or androgenetic alopecia in males, or, and in and in females. When I leave the room, I'm often thinking to myself because I'm making that diagnosis, and I'm doing it fairly quickly. I get, I examine the patient, get some history and some background, but I'm always wondering: Am I missing another type? of alopecia that's going on that may have some significance in terms of how I treat it or even that there may be some underlying comorbidities, but I'm diagnosing the patient as having androgenetic alopecia or pattern alopecia. What are the simulants of androgenetic alopecia in men and women where it might be Another disease state, but it presents similar to androgenetic alopecia. I know that's a tough question, but I, I I think it's really important question.
1: So I will tell you when. Let's talk about boys first, right? Like when a guy comes, depending whatever the age is, I think the one tool we are not using as much as we should in hair studies is really our little dermatoscope. I'm not trying to make a so be trichoscopy like none of us are going to be Dr. Antonella Tosti necessarily. You know, certain people are super into it. I'm not an expert, but pulling out that dermatoscope lets you look at the hair follicle, so you can see: is there a little redness around it? Is there a little follicle, like a little perifollicular scale? Are there any pustules? Do you see any kind of areas of scarring? I would tell you that a lot of guys, even in their 20s and 30s, especially the younger they are when they start losing hair, they tend to have a lot of seborrheic dermatitis. So there's all this minimal um, kind of inflammation that's happening. I am a very strong believer to try to control any kind of alopecia. So if there is a seborrheic dermatitis, I will address it. Ketoconazole shampoo, plenty of studies to show that it helps with some of the stuff. And it does clear up some of the low-grade inflammation that even helps out things that are like in They that can look like AGA if you don't look close enough. Or you have to pay attention to the crown because sometimes it can be an AGA pattern, but it's really a little folliculitis decalvans that's starting up. And now there's this whole overlap of lichen planopilaris, folliculitis decalvans that can be happening. So definitely pull out that dermatoscope and try to see if there's any more inflammation there that you know you can't really pick up with the naked eye.
0: I've seen that seborrheic dermatitis and, and actively treat that. And I think it will it will often decrease hair shedding. In fact, there was some data years ago with ketoconazole that it decreased hair shedding um, in, in many of these patients. So I think control, it may not be the whole story, as you say, but it'll certainly help. And if the patient's sensing they're shedding less, they're encouraged, right? They're at least right. getting some encouragement by that.
1: Because there's nothing that's magic. So I feel like we all have to pull out a bunch of things to get it going. Because if we don't do it and try to calm down whatever is happening or try to slow it down and explain the path, what's the problem in the whole hair field? It's, a, it's full of snake oil. I mean, billions and billions of dollars are getting pulled. People are spending so much money for all sorts of shampoos that are like 150 to $200 for all sorts of gadgets, some with you know supported technology, some without much. So we have to kind of be on top of the, at least on the medical side, to see if there's anything that we can help out and to help them guide the thing. On the other side, for from the guys for the girls, it is a little bit complicated. I think women is as they grow up, and I try to tell them that you know, over the age of forty, somehow it's, it's something that is very difficult for women to grasp, and that is that. It's okay to get wrinkles. It's okay for things to sag, but somehow it's not okay for our hair to get thin. There is such thing as senescence alopecia. That is alopecia of the hair getting thinner with age. With a lot of women, especially they have curly hair, some women uh, from the Asian continent, the sides get thin. So they even have a more of a perceived thinning of the hair as time goes on. So it is something that has to be discussed. But a lot of things that get to be attributed to androgenetic alopecia may not just be that simple. Um, I've seen psoriasis hide. So you put taclinex on somebody, if they have a little bit of scale, they'll regrow their hair. And, you know, you, they were diagnosed with AGA. I think still in histology, we're we we're not as good as we can be when it comes to the, especially non-scarring alopecia. And I think a lot of times clinicians, and I don't know, you tell me how you feel, you know, you do a biopsy, send it in, you're like, can you tell me what it is? And you get, get back like non-scarring alopecia could be telogen, androgenetic, the early stage this. So, I think some of the challenges come from there too.
0: So, it, it, I'm glad you mentioned biopsy because I, I really, you know, not to throw any stones at colleagues in, in dermatopathology, but I, I think there's a range of of the quality you get back in certain disease states. And I think alopecias are difficult for everybody, including dermatopathologists. And then you get questions about, you know, how did you take this punch biopsy, or it has to be sectioned a certain way, or, or you know. So it, it becomes very confusing. But when do you feel biopsies are truly important in a patient that presents with with alopecia?
1: I go through through times in life when I kind of biopsy everybody or like when I back up in biopsies, I I will biopsy everybody that has a question. You just need an answer. At least that way, even if you get that it's nothing, it's something we don't know, non-conclusive, you have evidence that there's no lichen planopilaris or that there's no inflammation at a certain level. Anytime you, you, you see redness and you just don't know where to put it, I would definitely encourage doing biopsies more than not. Tricks for biopsies. I would avoid doing the temples just because there can be age-related thinning there, and you can have kind of that um, male pattern or female pattern that shows up with age, maybe giving you lower numbers so you don't want to get that reading if it's not there. The second thing, we all hate doing uh, scalp biopsies. Why? Because scalp bleeds. So I always say, numb it and walk out of the room. Tell the patient, you know, you're going to marinate for a little bit. So you don't have to have three people <laughs> holding pressure down there. So just numb them nicely and walk out and then come back. Three millimeter biopsies are good enough if there's only verticals, but I know that most derm pads do prefer four millimeters. Sutures are going to be there. You do tell patients they may get scarring. They are going to lose hair in the area, so they're aware. Look at the scalp anatomy, just that one little like residency uh, picture so you know how deep you have to go and you're not over a vessel. So just to avoid the bleedings. But that's what I will suggest. And find out from your derm pads who they are, what they prefer. I trained with Wilma Bergfeld, and all we read was were verticals. And you got to see if there was psoriasis. You, I mean, it was enough. But horizontals are preferred by many dermatopathologists, uh, which rely a lot on more counting things. And I'm like, where else in derm do we really count stuff as much as we do? So I think with histology, was still not perfect, but find the person that you trust and kind of stick with them.
0: Okay, that's very helpful. So now let's uh, move into this uh this arena of alopecia areata, right? And, you know... Alopecia areata, to me, was one of those disease states, unless it was just a few localized patches, very much like hidradenitis suppurativa, which is having uh, a fortunate explosion of new information and new new therapies being developed. It, it's great, but those were two of the conditions that I always thought. And I've asked this at meetings to large groups: write down three disease states that, if you had a magic wand, you'd want to see. Never come in again because they are no longer on the face of the earth. Not because not things like melanoma, not things that could kill people, or just because you feel helpless in treating that disease. And hidradenitis suppurativa and alopecia areata that was rapidly progressing or diffuse and not just responding to simple treatments. And vitiligo is another one where you just I would feel like. I, I I could only get so far, but I'm really not helping these people. And that was very, very lonely feeling that I think a lot of dermatologists have. But we're not in that situation right, right? now. We're we're seeing a lot of new therapies. Yes. And I'd like you to bring forward what's going on in alopecia, this whole concept of loss of hair follicle privilege. <laughs> we're, we're losing our privileges, you know, right? So can you explain what that means, uh, you know, so I could understand it?
1: It's very interesting about hairs, right? Hair, their own unique little organ. They do their own thing. So um, the whole privilege is really that you lose that privilege to function as your own unit and you expose Yourself or the hair follicle exposes itself to attack by the immune system. I think we, we were very fortunate in alopecia and all the chronic diseases in dermatology to learn from psoriasis. So a lot of the things that happen in psoriasis paved the way for all the other chronic conditions. Why? Because a lot of the patients have some of the kind of genomic and inflammatory pathways that are happening. And we have been able to use a lot of the biology that was set forth in that arena into all of these conditions. For alopecia areata, things that we have learned through the years is that it's not just a hair disease, right? We talk about it now, as it's not just cosmetic, it's a medical condition. About 30%, even more, when it comes to children, of patients have atopic um, triad, right? Atopic dermatitis. They may have um, eczema, allergies, asthma. Um, The thyroid tends to be a little bit more common in adults. So we kind of, there can be vitiligo. Now the whole inflammatory bowel things, associations with, you know, ADHD are coming through. So all sorts of things that um, kind of fall into this inflammatory regulations are coming together. The pathways that regulate this um, have been, at least for some of the conditions, such as the JAK inhibitor pathways, have been um, you know, the beacons for how we are treating the condition now. But I think it's just one of the ways that is going to help a lot of patients. And then other things are coming through as well, particularly addressing some of the uh, ways that allergies are playing a role in the condition.
0: So, uh, th- th- you brought up the the point about you know, a topics, and and I've seen some, especially a few children that that are atopic, have atopic dermatitis and have uh, alopecia areata. And some of those have responded very well to dipilium uh, is is that something where, you, you, look, think about it in terms of prognostic factors. Does it matter if they're atopic or not? The severity of the on, at the onset, if it's pre or later or nail changes or not. When you find some of these different things, do they help you predict how they're going to respond and what treatments to use?
1: For sure. I will tell you that I. I mean, this may sound silly, but I actually get excited when somebody has allergies because for me, I feel like, okay, these are my allergy people. Then I have people that are like my thyroid immune people. So in my head, I crudely divide them in subsets. Um, Usually the younger they are, the more severe the condition is. I will say I will have people who may have more than 50% hair loss. They may not be universalist, but maybe high totalis. who may have patchy alopecia, right? But most of it is gone. And if they have allergies, even like a regimen of Allegra in the morning, Zyrtec in the evening, cereal, whether it's eczema or ILK, can bring the hair back and keep it. So I totally agree with you. The Dupilumab definitely helps. The studies from Emma Gutman at Mount Sinai showed that having an IgE that's elevated at baseline actually can be a predictive factor for people that will respond to the dupilumab. So what I do now when somebody comes in as a new patient, and even some of my uh, prior patients who are not on JAK inhibitors, I will check their IgE levels. And if they're high, then I, at least I feel I have more of a reason to pursue the um, kind of the the eosinophilic pathways, the more uh, dupilumab, the the Zyrtec, the antihistamine stuff. So definitely Ig is something that I picked up from um, the trials we were running from Bean High, and then the Emma studies, Dr. Gutman studies definitely confirmed it. One thing for dupilumab, something she said at the meeting is, you know, when you treat patients with dupilumab, it's not a sprint; it's more of a marathon. So, if a typical JAK inhibitor, which we'll probably talk about, starts working within a month or two, dupilumab takes a little bit more on the longer side, four to six months. So, that's where we're looking at.
0: So, on on the thyroid side of it, I had always been thinking about, you know, they come in one, one or two little patches, say, well, you know. Palpate, you don't feel anything. Well, what does that mean? Uh, you maybe get some baseline T3, T4, which doesn't necessarily tell you anything. TSH may not even be that sensitive, right? Depending on where they're at. So there's these anti-thyroglobulin antibodies and anti-thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and I used to think. So what if they're positive? What does that? Mean. So I, I wouldn't get them unless I really clinically thought was, something was going on. But in some of my readings, it's still important to know that because it might be a predictive factor for you that at some point they're going to develop Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Is that true? And when do you do that thyroid testing?
1: So I used to draw the antibodies quite often. And then when they come abnormal, the question is, what do you do next? Because their TSH, T3, T4 is maybe normal. So patients will want to go to see an endocrinologist, and the endocrinologist would be like, tell your crazy dermatologist to stop joining these labs because there's no function to them. And then one patient even was like, oh my God, I I was in such distress because I read about anti-tyroglobulin, and I saw that tyroglobulin can be a marker of thyroid cancer, which is not really how things are. But my whole point is people can get excited, and endocrinologists don't know what to do with these things except say, okay, let's watch. But here's one thing. The hair follicle does have thyroid receptors. I think there's one good article on this. So my theory or my question is, okay, you treat the Hashimoto's here, but you may still have these circulating antibodies and what are they doing to your hair follicles? So that's what we don't know. That's one of these big, great unknowns that I hope somebody will take on and research. It's on my list of things to study, but it just never got to it. Because I will tell you, even in the lichen planopilaris population or the AGA that have nothing else of inflammatory characteristics. If they have Hashimoto's, they're just tough to regrow. So I think there's still something more to it that we don't know about.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what makes this so exciting is I told you before how feeling helpless, I don't feel so helpless anymore. I feel like I'm learning a lot and have, you know, better options to offer to the patients. So now let's move on to Janus kinase inhibitors. We, we now have baricitinib being FDA approved for alopecia areata, uh, and we expect more to be forthcoming. And we know everything we hear about, you know, JAK inhibitors, information's all over the place. It's, it's hard for somebody that's out there in the trenches to piece it all together. So can you summarize how Natasha utilizes or works with Janus kinase inhibitors for alopecia areata?
1: So my experience um, is from now five years of doing clinical trials, um, I've used JAK inhibitors not only for alopecia areata, but also for atopic dermatitis and other indications I have come across. And um, I have had the chance to try JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, some TIC inhibitors. So that, that's where I'm coming from, so you guys know. Uh, I, my limited experience is what it is. But I, I've had a lot of patients for many years advantage of the JAK inhibitors. So compared to some of the things that we had for psoriasis, the TNF alphas or the biologics, they are pills. they are pills that people take either once a day or twice a day. Surprisingly, when people take them, they don't know much, especially in the early stages when I ask my patients, would you know if it's a sugar pill or a medication? They don't know. It's not like doxycycline, you know, you have a little bit of indigestion. They, it's really very well-tolerated medication, which is surprising in one way or another. When it comes to um, taking it, the, some of the first signs that a patient will respond to the medication usually starts about, depends, six weeks or later. Some, what do luckily, they see,
0: new hair, new hair growing pimples, in?
1: Pimples. Like folliculitis. So you will see the side effect being folliculitis. And sorry, I use the word pimples, acne, whatever the, the word du jour is. But I always take it as a positive sign. I don't know if it's the hair follicles waking up. but At least that's the way I explain it to the patients. But you will start seeing not only on the scalp, but on the face as well particularly in younger patients. So that's one of the early signs. When it comes to labs, not many abnormalities. CKs are something that can go up, especially in young people who do a lot of exercise, but nothing that I've seen in any of the trials, at least from the safety data, that anyone's had any, as far as I know, any rhabdo or any kind of bad stuff that's happened.
0: So, so with baricitinib, for example, uh, what's the sense with any blood dyscrasias or hematologic changes or lipids? Some of the things that we hear about. What- what are you doing there?
1: Yeah, you can have lipid increases. You can have a little bit of cholesterol um, stuff. Some people triglycerides. glycerides. And I, the sense that I'm getting, it's, it's it tends to be more like I think the Accutane patients, like things that had, tend to have it at baseline. People that tend to have it at baseline tend to increase a little bit more. But I think we only have really two phase three trials with like 500 people each. So um, not that much to draw the data for that population. Dalopecia areata patients are what? Young, right? Average is about mid-30s. So they're not going to have a lot of comorbidities that patients, for example, that are treated with baricitinib with rheumatoid arthritis will have. So I think time will tell. But what's the biggest concern? The biggest concern is that, you know, you put these people that are young on an immunosuppressive medicine for as long as they shall live. At least that's the way that we think about it now until we figure out what are ways to People on whether that's going to be minoxidil or something else, so we can take them off and decrease things. And I think that will happen with time as we're learning more and more outside the trials. The, the trials are so regimented that so you just can't play that much about taking people off drugs and things. Um, the other things, the black box warnings are not a joke, so we have to respect them for the whole class cancers, because what does the immune system do? It clears infections and it clears cancers. So, there are higher risk for infections. Things that I've seen are definitely herpes zoster, and as young people, as um, 17. So, they can have herpes zoster and have herpes in different parts, face, body.
0: You make sure that they get the zoster vaccine before, and if they start the the, the jack inhibitor, can they still get the vaccine while they're on the jack inhibitor and expect to, res- to get the response you're supposed to get from the vaccine, or do you have to wait?
1: For the trials, the trials will have different regulations. Uh, for baricitinib, I have the, we'll have the discussion with patients. For tofacitinib, we do, but a lot of the young people don't opt to do it. Like So that's at least in my hands, and I will leave it to other parts of the country to say the same. There is some evidence that JAK inhibitors may decrease efficacies of certain vaccines. So I will try to do it before we start the therapy rather than being while it's on the therapy. So that's what I will um, suggest to patients is to try to do it in advance. If if it's, it's possible. Most of the um, other infections, are really kind of like those upper respiratory that we see with any kind of um, most of the immunosuppressant medications, but nothing bad that's recorded. The things that scare me and the things that we have to watch, although super low incidences for the whole family of medications, the cardiac, so, that's something we just have to kind of collect data as time will come. Nothing scary thus far. And then the thrombotic events, which yeah, are- that's what i
0: That's what I wanted to ask you about, though. The, the, you know, I'm picturing it's a 6 o'clock on a Friday, and you get a call that there's a patient. They have swelling in their leg that's tender, that's 32 years old, that's a, a, a female with alopecia areata that happens to be on oral contraceptives right. also, right? And you're concerned about… Uh, deep deep venous thrombosis risk. I think that's a call that most dermatologists are not going to feel comfortable with. What is the reality with that? And then we'll wrap up.
1: The reality from the trials is that the numbers have been super low. And then a recent meta analysis came out. that said that maybe it's not a real connection, but It's there, the box is there. But the reality is in the trial so far with alopecia areata, it's very low. I will say we discuss it with patients, we make them aware, especially with COVID. COVID is what scares me because it can push certain people into the whole clotting cascade. So I think people need to be aware and the first sign of something like that, they run to the ER. But you have the discussion when you start them on the medicine and you make them make a decision. It's not our job to hide or fluff things. It's our job to just be open and honest about it so patients know. So when it happens, they go to the emergency room.
0: So I have one more question for you, Natasha. What are situations where you say, I will, I'm not going to use a, a jack inhibitor in this patient with alopecia areata that jumps out and says, obviously, they have to, uh, active TB or, you know, you know they're a, a HIV infection or whatever, some obvious things. But are there certain tips that you can give?
1: Cancer patients, or like somebody that's had cancer within the last five years, I will definitely not. I will have a discussion and I will warn it. If they had a history of heart attack, I will not. If they are, for example, a smoker, diabetic, overweight, like a horrible risk for heart attacks and stuff like that, then definitely not. If they have a family history of clotting disorders, Those are the things that I will consider. And if some people still want the medicine, then I'll have a note from the cardiologist, a note from whoever it is that everybody's understand, have things be signed. As long as we're all on the same page, to each its own.
0: We, we got to be we gotta be doctors, right? Right. We got to be doctors, right? Because there's a lot going on deeper than the skin. Natasha, thanks so much. We could go on forever. And I'm sure in other circles, we will. Uh, and you have a great day. Say hello to your husband, another great guy, and, and your son. <laughs> and thanks so much for, you know, you bring it to life, you make it real. And that's what I love about it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this show. It's awesome.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.